thank you for still making it up and being here this morning. Um, it's remarkable that we're already at the beginning of the new year, 2023. Wow. When I was a oh, preteen or a teenager, I, I really didn't think I'd live long enough. Well, let me say that again. I thought Jesus would be coming back before I got married. That was, that was how I was thinking about things. And here I am um, in my 60s, and we just keep rolling along. But we are one year closer to his return, aren't we? And uh, thankful for his promises. As believers, we throw around a lot of terms and concepts from the Bible that are familiar to us. But sometimes I find myself wondering, do I actually understand what these terms mean? Or do I hear them all the time and even say them, do I only have a thimble full of meaning? Do you guys know what a thimble is? Anybody use a thimble anymore? You know, so I actually had to go to the dollar store and I bought one yesterday. All they had this little plastic thing. I mean, it's hard to get it on my little finger, but, but that, that's a thimble. Some of us wonder, do I only have a thimble full of meaning behind words like grace or justification or when we first started coming to sovereign grace we heard things like what did we hear things like just 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 take it to the cross or apply the gospel to your marriage and parenting and i was trying to how, how do i apply the gospel to conflicts i mean do i need a butter knife I'm, I, I i really didn't know what but over the years listening to the preaching reading jerry bridges having discussions with many of you in community groups and meditating on scripture, I now have some meaning behind the concept, live in the good of the gospel or apply the gospel to your parenting and your, your marriage. And it's growing. You know, before Ryan's children's message a couple of weeks ago at, at Christmas time, I asked him what he was going to talk about. And he said, shepherd. And I was wondering, how is he going to connect shepherd with Christmas? Did anybody else wonder that? But I didn't ask him because I trusted Ryan, but I was paying attention. I don't know what the kids got out of it. I always get tons out of a children's message because, oh, so that's what that means. You know, it makes great sense. But after Ryan was done talking, my previously thimble full of meaning about Shepherd had grown to a pint jar. So I know next time, I, in fact, I think it was in one of the songs this morning, but next time I come across Shepherd in my Bible reading, it's gonna, there's going to be more meaning behind that idea because of what Ryan shared with us on Christmas morning. And this morning, we're going to talk about the steadfast love of God. The Hebrew word, this is one of those five or six Hebrew words every Christian needs to know, is the word hesed. And there's probably a little bit of a guttural sound, but when I try to (laughs) hesed, it it doesn't sound good. I'm just going to say hesed. But that's one one Hebrew word you need to know. And hesed is in the Bible, in the Old Testament, 250 times. Half of them are in the Psalms. And in the Psalms, all but a handful talk about God's hesed, God's steadfast love. And we're going to talk about hesed this morning. And my hope, my prayer, as I've been praying, is if your understanding right now of hesed, of God's steadfast love, is a thimbleful, maybe by the end of the message, you'll be a pint jar. Okay. Or if it's a pint jar, maybe it'll be a gallon full. 
And by the end of 2023, Lord willing, as we've walked with the Lord for another year, as we've been reading our Bibles, and we come across that word all over the place, right? If you read your Bible, you stumble across steadfast love. That hopefully by the end of the year, our minds are going to be pulling freight cars full of meaning about God's steadfast love to us as his people. And so we're going to look at one short passage this morning, uh, Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. If, and if you'll turn there, we'll read that. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And then we'll um, unpack that together. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, abounding in hesed and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin a new year here, 2023, the biggest thing we're going to need isn't more money, it's not better health, or it's not a sweeter vacation, but the biggest thing we need is to know you more fully, who you are, and particularly your steadfast love for us. So my prayer, our prayer, is that by your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes today, maybe for the first time, to see your steadfast love. Or Lord, if, we, if we've seen it, at least open them wider that we may see and understand more fully how great is your steadfast love for us that it endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to think about the steadfast love of the Lord this morning in three points. Point number one, steadfast love or hesed is the predominant characteristic of the heart of God. I hope that raises some questions and stirs something in your mind. We're going to talk about that. Point number two, steadfast lover Hesed is God's posture toward repentant sinners who trust him. Point three, God's steadfast love is active and sure, even in our sickness, adversity, hopelessness, and apparent abandonment. We'll only get to the first two points this morning. Lord willing, look at point three next week. And I want us to think about an image of freight trains, okay? My, my grandson Isaiah loves trains, and so we watch a lot of train videos together, and there are a lot of train videos, and they are really cool. And so we have diesel trains, steam engines. Um, there must just be some people who spend their whole life going filming, filming trains. So we watch a lot of lot of train videos together. But as we're going through this message, think about, think about your mind as the engine, okay? I wish this was bigger. I wish I had a huge one. But think about your mind as the engine of a freight train. And behind, the engine always pulls stuff, right? And behind that engine is the things our mind are thinking. And hopefully... What that engine is pulling isn't just a little thimble full of meaning, okay? Hopefully, as we grow in the Lord, what our, the minds of our engines are pulling are freight cars full of meaning about God's love, God's grace, God's holiness. 
And so we're going to line up a couple freight cars this morning in, the, in, the, in these points. And so the first point we're going to line up here is right there, kids. Point number one, steadfast love is the predominant characteristic of the heart of God. Now, hesed, the Hebrew word, is translated in different versions as mercy, loving kindness, loyal love. The ESV typically calls it steadfast love in the translating of this word. But at God's acts of steadfast love, there's never any obligation on his, on his part. He's never coerced into any of them. His steadfast love arises out of his affection and his delight and kindness for us as his people. That's what motivates God's steadfast love. And one writer defines God's hesed in this way. God's hesed, God's steadfast love, refers to his special commitment to the people with whom he has gladly bound himself in an unbreakable covenant bond. It's his special commitment to the people with whom he has gladly bound himself in an unbreakable covenant bond of enduring love. If you or I were asked to describe God's nature, his essential character, in one phrase, I think many of us, maybe most of us, would probably write down something like, God is great and glorious and powerful. Or we might say, God is holy in all he does, and he hates all sin. And those things are absolutely true, right? They are absolutely true. That is absolutely correct. But when Moses asked God, God, show me your glory. Would you show me what you are like? That's not how God responded to Moses' question. Do you know how God responded to Moses' question? Those verses we read in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. So you have that open. Let's look again. Okay, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and I, I think it is on the screen there. So Moses had asked God, God, would you show me your glory? And, and God said, I, I can't show you all my, I can't show you my face. You would die. I'll show you my backside. I'm going to show you all my goodness. So when God is describing himself, this is God's self-description of his character. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now you might object, well, Phil, you're just choosing the one verse you like best in the Bible. There are a whole bunch of other verses that describe God's character. And that's true. A lot of other verses describe God's character. But this verse, okay, this verse is God's answer to Moses' question. And this verse is quoted seven times in the Old Testament and alluded to numerous of other times. And so there's something important about this verse that stands. This is arguably the most important verse in the Old Testament about the character of God. And we ran into this at the end of, end of the book of Jonah. You remember in Jonah chapter 4? Jonah's angry because God didn't destroy the Ninevites. 
And God says, you know, is it right for you to be angry? And, and Moses responds to him, Mo, uh, not Moses, Jonah responds and says, let me find this here. Where is that, folks? It's somewhere in here. Oh, right here. Okay. Moses responded and said, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are, you knew what he said? He quoted Exodus 34, 6. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Interesting. Jonah quotes God's own words about God's... Now, in, in that case, Jonah wasn't happy that God was this kind of God, right? He liked it for himself, not, but seven times this verse is quoted in the Old Testament about the character of God. So this verse is almost like an Old Testament catechism. What is our God like? We can say our God is like this. He is slow to anger abounding in loving kindness and, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That's what our God is like. Dane Ortland writes, this isn't what we would expect, is it? He writes, when we speak of God's glory, we are speaking of who God is, what he is like, his distinctive resplendence, what makes God, God. And when God himself sets forth the terms of his glory, he surprises us with wonder. Our deepest instincts expect him to be thundering, gavel-swinging, judgment-relishing. We expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we expect? And then Exodus 34 and a hundred other passages tap us on the shoulder and stop us in our tracks. The bent of God's heart is mercy. His glory is his goodness. God does not reveal himself as exacting and demanding, harsh and severe, you've got to meet. That's not how God reveals himself in scripture. Reveals himself as merciful and gracious. Can you put Exodus 34 back up? Oh, you don't have that, you don't have that verse. Okay, sorry. Um, so do you have it in your Bibles? Exodus 34, verse 6. Okay, where it says, good job. All right. Exodus 34. When it says showing love for thousands, that could also be translated showing love to the thousandth generation, as, as it is in Deuteronomy when, when, when this phrase is used elsewhere. It could be showing love to the thousandth generation. Now, you might say, if you're looking, if you've got your Bibles open, that second part of, of verse 7 doesn't just, doesn't just erase everything God said about his mercy and kindness when it says he won't forgive the guilty, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Doesn't that just eradicate everything you just said? Well, let's think about it for a minute, because really, if we meditate on that, it actually strengthens this, this statement about God's love. Without that statement about God's judgment on the guilty, 
We might think that his love and kindness were sort of like Santa Claus, right? Oh, just let boys be boys. We'll just blink at your naughtiness and act like you were a good kid, good kid this year and give you, give you candy anyway. No, this verse tells us God is no softy. He takes our sin and our rebellion very seriously and the expression of his abundant mercy and love is never an ignoring or setting aside of his hope holiness and justice. God is not a softy. He hates our sin. He is holy. But notice how this passage expresses God's mercy and grace on the one hand and his holy judgment on the other. They are not weighted equally in the way he deals with us as his his people. How does God himself weight these, if you want to put it, if I can put it that way? How does the verse weight his grace and mercy compared to his holy judgment? What what does the verse say? How does he weight them? A thousand to what? Three or four. His grace and steadfast love to thousands or to a thousand generations. And when he visits the sin of the guilty to the third and fourth. Can we imagine a greater contrast in how God's... This doesn't mean God is more gracious than he is holy. He is perfectly holy, right? He is absolutely holy in all he does. But when God deals with us as his people, he wants us to see, hey, my, hope, my, my justice and my judgment... How, how do we rightly see? Because we want to be careful, right? I don't want to say that misrepresent the character of God. But the way he deals with us is, someone put it this way, his grace, what, what's it called? Trigger happy? Quick, quick pull? He has a quick pull on his grace, a thousand times on his grace. It takes a lot to pull God pull the trigger on his judgment and wrath. Thousand times grace and mercy. Three or four, his holy justice. What a contrast there. What a contrast. John Owen, the great Puritan pastor, commenting on this verse, he points out how God uses... Is that one there? God uses numerous terms terms to convince us of his compassionate and forbearance. And not till the close of all makes any mention of severity as that which he will not exercise towards any except toward those by whom his compassion is despised. That's when God's holy wrath comes out. To those who despise his compassion. And then Richard Sibbs, another Puritan, says this, If we would know the name of God and see God as he is pleased and delighted to discover himself to us, let us know him by those names that he proclaims there. He's referring to Exodus 34. There in Exodus 34, showing that the glory of the Lord in the gospel especially shines in mercy. 
So how does the rest of the Old Testament describe the extent and extravagance of God's steadfast love for his people? I just listed out a few things. This is all on the website there and a whole bunch of references for these. So steadfast love. Do we have that one with the bullets? These guys were up late last night, too, I'm afraid. We'll be there. We'll get there, guys. You don't think we got it? Okay. All right. Mention this. It's, it's going to be all on the website when, when Anita gets back and posts it, I think. So, the Old Testament describes the extent and extravagance of God's steadfast love in this way. It is abounding. It's not little. It's, it's, it's abounding. There it is. Okay, it's as high as the heavens. As high as the heavens. Measure that. It endures forever. It's to thousands or to the thousand generations. It's from eternity past all the way to eternity future. And it's what God delights in. God delights in steadfast love. So God's steadfast love. No, I mean, no wonder this refrain. is. It's like the tune, the hum in the Old Testament in the Old Testament throughout. The Psalms are full of this refrain. His steadfast love endures forever. Because when you understand these things about God, it's like, man, it just puts puts a tune in the back of your heart and mind. I want to read two of these many passages. Um, The first one I know you're familiar with. The second one you might not be. And do we have um, Psalm 103? No. Okay. Psalm 103. You've got it in your Bibles. Turn there to verse 8. Psalm 103, verse 8. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. But this, a few verses here capture several of these aspects about God's steadfast love. Psalm 103. And I think you'll recognize verse 8. The Lord is what? Keep going. Yes, Where did, what's that a quote from? Exodus 34, verse 6. It goes on, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens, yes, are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is the west, so far... Does he remove our transgressions from us? Slide down to verse 15. As for man, it's describing us here. Our days are like grass. We flourish like a field, flower of the field. The wind passes over it and we're gone. The place knows it. No, that, that describes our life, right? They are brief and short. But, to verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from what? Everlasting everlasting eternity past to eternity future on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children here's another one in Micah 7 do you know where Micah is it's right Hosea Joel Amos Jonah Micah right right after Jonah right Um, if, if you found that for a few weeks while Aaron is preaching turn to Micah Chapter 7, the last couple of verses in Micah. 
you know, Micah was preaching to the, prophesying to Judah, the southern kingdom, before the Babylonian exile, and, and his message was not happy. He was indicting them for their sins, saying, the Babylonians, you're coming, you're going into captivity. But here, the last three verses of his prophecy, Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This term hesed, this idea of steadfast love, it's the Old Testament equivalent to what the Apostle John says in the New Testament. God is love. Or maybe we should better say these are the roots of what John says, right? John's just carrying on. The New Testament writers are just carrying what the old Old Testament says about what our God is like. Abundant in steadfast love. Pastor Ortland writes again, the Christian life from one angle. Do we have that one? Okay. The Christian life from one angle is, and, and we could say our walk with the Lord here in 2023, okay, is this. It's the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps, perhaps, brothers and sisters, Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Satan's greatest victory in your life and mine today and in 2023 may not be the sin in which we regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause us to go there in the first place and then keep us cool toward him in the wake of our sin. I think he's right there. The thing that will change us more than anything else in 2023 and in our walk with the Lord is to know the love of Christ that he has for us. The steadfast love he has for you personally. Well, there's more, much more to fill out our understanding of God's steadfast love, this central feature of his heart toward his people. And so here's 
Here's the second freight car that we need to hook up to the engine of our mines. There's my second freight car. There we go. And that is this. Steadfast love or hesed is God's posture toward repentant sinners who trust in him. Let me ask you this question. Where in the world do you go when you catch a glimpse of the ugliness of your own sin and you know that you have no justification for it and it hits you that if it, if it repulses you, how abhorrent must it be to a perfectly holy and righteous God? Whether you're a believer in Christ yet or not this morning, where do you turn when you're looking in the mirror at your own pride or lust or selfishness or greed or bitterness and and you know exactly what the psalmist means when he says in Psalm 103, Oh Lord, if, if you keep a record of, of wrongs, oh Lord, who could stand? I am toast. I am history. Because as we read in Exodus 34, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And if God keeps a record of my sins, your sins, folks, we, we are toast. Where do you turn? Where can we turn? Because the all-knowing God, he knows your sin a lot more than you do. He knows my heart, our heart, much, much more than we do. And he sees it all. There's no place to hide. And so Psalm 130, the psalmist asks that question. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But he goes on, but... With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are to be feared. And so he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, O sovereign grace church, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Where did King David run to when he saw it, when he went face, came face to face with the atrocity of his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah? Where did King David turn? Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. But of course, the final proof of who God is isn't found in Exodus, is it? It's not found in the Old Testament, but it's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because there we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the very image of God. And there we see that God the Father sent his beloved son into the world as the tangible embodiment of his steadfast love. It's written all over the pages of the Old Testament. Now it comes in person, in body, in flesh, in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, his, his bumbling disciples, average folks just like you and me, having loved them while he was in the world, he loved them to the uttermost, all the way to the cross, all the way to the resurrection, all the way to their heavenly home. 
And the reason, the only reason God could show steadfast love to anybody in the Old Testament or any sinner today like you and me is because he took all our sins, all your sins, and he put them on his beloved son. Brothers and sisters, can can anything be any better? He put them on Jesus and crushed his son. Punished him for your sins. Paul says in Romans 8, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If this is God's steadfast love for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us everything we need? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Those things are all real, aren't they? They are real. Paul says, no. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All that steadfast love that God has been exhibiting to his people in the Old Testament now comes to us, to you and me, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now, by way of application, how do we hook ourselves? Okay, we're the caboose now. How do we hook ourselves to this freight train of love? First, repent and receive. Repent of your sins and receive God's forgiveness by acknowledging that your only hope is that Christ died in your place. He died as your substitute. And by receiving him as your atoning sacrifice, you can be made right with God. That's the only way, my friend, the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So receive his hesed today. Receive his steadfast love. Just thinking about some of you teenagers. By, by this time, some of you have sat in 500 church services, maybe, maybe more than that. Some of you, a thousand. You know, some of us, we're, we're into thousands, right? Thousands of church services. If you have never received God's gift of forgiveness and eternal life, what a great day, the first day of 2023, to say, Lord Jesus, I, I desperately need what only you can give me. That is the love and forgiveness of God. Because if I don't receive it from you, I will be one of those guilty who will surely not go unpunished. There's only one hope, my friend. What a great day to receive Christ's forgiveness and be forgiven. Secondly, if you've already received that forgiveness and gift of extravagant grace and love, then... Keep yourself in the love of God this year by regularly rehearsing the gospel, reviewing and recounting, read the Psalms, sing loudly, pray and petition on the basis of God's steadfast love for you. So every day, when you get up and open up your Bible to fellowship with your Savior, pray Psalm 9014. Father, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice all my days. When you walk out the door and hop in the car to go to the work, go to school, When you sit down at the supper table, 
together as a family. Thank the Lord for two or three things that are evidences that day of his steadfast love. Lamentations 3.22 says that his steadfast love and mercies are new every morning. Every day we have many reasons to find. And if you can't find anything in that day, just think again, reflect again on his steadfast love to you that goes back to eternity past, will extend to eternity future, that can brighten the darkest of days, brothers and sisters, the most difficult moments in our broken lives. There is steadfast love to recall and to be grateful for. Marvel that when you have to confess your sin to him for the 499th time this week, some of us are well beyond that, aren't we, Ricardo? When we have to confess our sin, he will not push you away. My brother and sister, he will not push you away because as Psalm 130 promises us, if he kept a record of our wrongs, we're toast. But with the Lord, there is forgiveness and steadfast love and abundance, plentiful redemption. Husbands, we have the privilege and the responsibility of leading our wives into this vast ocean of the steadfast love of God. Dads and moms, for every time you correct your children, tell them twice, at least, at least twice, of God's love for them, of his steadfast love for them. And if that, I don't know how that thousand to three or four ratio, but tell them often how God loves them, of his steadfast love. Teenagers and young children, if you will read your Bibles regularly and learn now in your youth, how incredibly great is the steadfast love of God for you? You will gain a stability. You will gain ballast in your boat to help you face a world that is dead set on convincing you that you're a loser and a piece of trash. And God doesn't think so. God's steadfast love is abundant toward you. And the younger, the quicker we learn that, oh, it changes life, brothers and sisters. Chris, could you come back? And we're going to sing a song again in just a minute. But I want to close with that quote again from Pastor Ortland because I, I, I think this is a huge need for all of us. The Christian life from one angle. Do you have that one again, Ethan? The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. We've got to work at this this year, brothers and sisters. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life up to this point is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Let's stand. Let's not be cool toward God's steadfast love. Let's, let's worship him together.
Blessed is the one whose sins are overcome, whom God has sheltered deep within His grace. And blessed is the one. 